You're listening to Let's Talk Creation, the science podcast that's just for you. Well, uh, welcome everybody once again to another episode of Let's Talk Creation with Paul Garner and Todd Wood. I'm Paul Garner. And I'm Todd Wood. And uh, we want to, uh, first of all, uh, thank everybody uh, for joining us uh, once again. Uh, You're very welcome, whether you're uh, a regular with us now or whether you're a newcomer. And uh, do remember, uh, whoever you are, whether you're regular or or, uh, new to this parish, uh, to uh, like, uh, share, subscribe, leave us a positive review, all of those kinds of things on whatever platform uh, you're listening on. Now, Todd... um, before we kind of launch into today's episode, I notice that you are not in your usual office. So tell us about that. Yeah, I am not in my usual <laughs> office. Uh, anybody who's been around Core Academy offices uh, knows that it is a noisy place. <laughs> we're, on, we're on the campus of a, a regular day school, K through 12 day school, and we have a railroad crossing about 150 feet from my office and there's a junkyard across the street which is often driving heavy equipment around moving their cars and so forth so it's long been a desire to find someplace quieter um so my wife and i decided uh earlier this year we had a little bit extra money because of um strange circumstances covid substitute teaching on my part for a semester um and uh, and so we decided uh, we'd build a little space on our property, and we we just wow. want to use it for extra living space. We want to use it for um, recording studio, little study area, kind of a yeah yeah kind of an office at home, kind of a nice living space, little comfortable. So that's what we did. So that's where I am. It's a little echoey in here. Um, we don't have anything in here except a bunch of tools because I'm literally just a day away from actually putting the finishing touches on it. And today I got to go do some caulking. So I'm actually not quite done. <laughs> but that's where I am. It's pretty exciting. Okay. You you need some egg boxes or foam up on your walls. Yeah, apparently. <laughs> to stop the echo. <laughs> <laughs> At least some art. But you've got I a mean, nice. These these walls are just some art, yeah. bare back here. It's pretty boring. So yeah, yeah. I I thought you'd been kidnapped at first. So. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Please send a large amount of money for ransom. Thank you. Send it to Core Academy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's good. But you have got a lovely view. I've seen the photos on Facebook. So you're kind of looking out into the woods. Yeah. And it looks very lovely. And today it's going to be really distracting because there's just a gentle breeze and the leaves are just falling regularly. And it's just beautiful. Yeah. <sighs> but I'll try to pay attention to what's going on here. But if you see my eyes wandering, you'll know what I'm looking at. <laughs> that's great. Well, uh, Todd, uh, today um, we wanted to think about hominins again. So, uh, you know, a lot of people know that you have uh, an interest in human fossils. And uh, just recently, 
there've been a whole load of uh, new uh, discoveries that have been announced and published. And so we thought before we get into our creation research series that, that we announced last time, uh, that we would talk about some of these uh, new discoveries and some of the new developments. So that's what we um, plan to do in this episode. And I wanted to begin actually um, with some developments in the discipline of barominology. Barominology. Yeah. Now, <laughs> for those who are uninitiated, you should probably just begin by telling us exactly what we mean by barominology. Yeah, what do I mean by barominology? Um, good question. So this was this has been a long standing idea in creationism. This actually goes back the earliest sort of hints of this go back before Darwin even published Origin of Species. The idea here that that what we scientists think of as species is actually probably not the, the sort of same thing that God created back in in the creation. Uh, that there were there's actually been some changes over time as species have spread out and adapted to their local environments and so forth. And so this is essentially the created kind concept, right? So I'm, I'm, I guess people would be pretty familiar with that idea. That, and usually we would talk about things like hybridization, right? So if, if two mm. creatures can uh, produce offspring, uh, they belong to the same created kind, even if they're not the same species. And that's a good idea. That's a useful idea. I think there's a lot of potential there. Um, but hybridization has its limits, right? So you can only go so far with, with hybrids. So it's been long been a desire of mine and my colleagues to sort of extend things beyond that, right? Because there are things that you can't hybridize with anymore. And there's especially things in the fossil record that are fascinating hmm. that you can't really do much with, uh, with hybridization. And, and so, you know, you think about and so when I talk about hybridization, I'm talking about, you know, you cross a horse and a donkey and you get a mule, right? And so that's a hybrid. And that would say that, you know, the fact that you get a mule tells you that the horse and the donkey belong in the same created kind. Very nice. And by the way, baramin there, that, that's, an old, that's a word that comes from the Hebrew for create, bara, and kind, mean. So baramin or baramin, that is... That is sort of our technical term for the created kind. And then barominology yep. is discipline of finding them. Hmm. So, yeah. So, long time ago, when I was still a student, uh, before I finished my degree, a bunch of us got together on the, on the newfangled internet back then. We were using email. It was exciting. Um, <laughs> And it's weird to think about it in those terms because it's only been, what, 20 years? 20, not that long, but anyway, technology moves fast. So uh, we were talking about ways that we could, you know, utilize some of the information that's published about things and um, the sorts of methods that we would want to use to, to analyze information and so forth. And so, yeah, so we began developing these 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 techniques that would take you know, published information about characteristics of organisms and run some math on it and tell us which things were 
significantly close together and which things were far apart. Significantly different, right? The idea being that, you know, if there is hybridization, when you when we look at hybridization in the modern world, we generally find that hybrids tend to be things that are pretty similar. Um, so, you know, you never see a cat and a dog hybridizing. And it makes sense because when you see a dog or a fox or something like that, a wolf, you recognize there's some dogishness to them, right? And you see a, mm. uh, you recognize a, a leopard or a, or a panther or a lion or a tiger and you recognize there's a sort of cattishness to them so forth so we thought maybe there's maybe there's these this this unbridgeable gap between the the created kinds that we could recognize based on this these sort of statistical clusters and so that's what led to uh, a good 10 years of of working out methods on things other than humans and then about a decade ago about well, about 12 years ago now getting to be 13 years ago <laughs> hey. wow. i began i began working on uh yeah all those caveman fossils and ape man fossils and trying to figure out you know what belongs together so that was yeah, yeah. That, that's basically the story yeah so 2010, I think you published your first paper on hominin barominology. Right. And we should probably say what we mean by the word hominin, because we kind of bandy that word around. Yeah. And, you know, it's, it's sort of a technical term. Yeah. So, so, so what do we mean by hominin? So a hominin, yeah, that's a good question. Um, so for an evolutionary biologist or anthropologist, uh, a hominin is a creature that is evolutionarily more closely related to modern human beings than it is to chimpanzees. Mm. Uh, and what we find, I think from the fossil record, is that hominins tend to be creatures that walked upright. That, that tends mm. to be the thing, or at least they exhibit attributes that make people think that they could have walked around habitually, regularly, on two legs rather than four. So that's that's right. basically the idea. So when I talk about a hominin, I'm generally using this, this qualitative term that these are either humans or apes that would regularly walk around on two legs. Maybe not always, maybe some of the times they climbed, that's, you know, that, that's open to discussion, but they definitely have attributes of their skeletons that make us think these guys probably walked around on, on two legs. Yeah. So we're not at this point making a judgment about whether these are humans or non-humans, right. um, but, but they're kind of all just right. classified together as hominins. Right, yeah. It's kind of so, like the way the scientists would say, you know, there's, there's things that have backbones, there's things that have bones inside their body versus, like, lobsters and insects and so forth that have sort of a crunchy exterior that forms their skeleton that, that's the kind of thing and and yeah. that's that's the qualitative way i want to think about hominins hominins walk around on two legs at least part of the time yeah. okay <clears throat> so so you published the first uh, statistical barominology study on hominins 2010 and then i think you did a follow-up study which i think was 2016 where you had a, an expanded data set right. and you've published various other things since then right. what do, in those early studies um 
just kind of summarize for us what it is that you found right just to kind of set the background yeah. for what we're going to talk very about. briefly then yeah so what i found was to my delight you could you could recognize separate groups of creatures and this is really what baromenology is shooting for right it's shooting for recognizing the difference between one group of creatures and another group of creatures so that was a big deal in my mind hmm. um i you know going into that you, you you know you hear all this evolutionary talk about oh there's this great transition between apes and humans and the fossils are beautiful and you know who could doubt human evolution and okay you know, I didn't know what I was going to find when I when I first went into right. this. It could have gone very differently, and it didn't. No, nope. it turned out that there was a pretty recognizable group that contained modern humans and Neanderthals, for example. And there was another group that contained things like Australopithecus afarensis, which is the Lucy fossil, the famous Lucy fossil, and it contained um, chimpanzees and things like that. And so that was really nice and uh what got me in trouble a little bit was uh <laughs> some of the other things that sort of ended up in the human group and not in the australopithecus group and i i get it i i was just as sort of frustrated um to be honest with you um for some of those things because i thought i just i don't know that that really looks very human but this is what the statistics are telling us so i can't just I mean, I can't lie about it. I can't say, you know, these, this method is all wrong because I don't think this is human. Or, you know, that that's just bias, right? That's not really science. Right. Science in science, you want to say we're going to follow we're going to follow the data. Yeah. To to an extent, right? So we have to interpret it yeah. logically and, and thoughtfully. But if I don't have a good reason for doubting my result, then I shouldn't be I shouldn't be running around pretending like. It, it's all bogus so so there was some yeah. there was some sure controversy <laughs> mm. but we but we shouldn't let the controversy overshadow the fact that actually this was a really great result because so. it, it 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 really showed that there was discontinuity between human-like fossils and ape-like fossils and uh, you could detect that morphological difference using these statistical methods and yeah, you know, that's a very significant result from a creationist perspective. Yeah, I think so. I, and I've always tried to emphasize that that, 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 yeah, there's creationists who disagree with me on certain things. But overall, there's a lot of agreement among creationists about exactly what is human and exactly what is not human. And these statistics, you know, the majority of, of assignments that this, that this technique makes on these groups, everybody agrees with. Oh, yeah, that, that's human. Oh, yeah, that's definitely yeah. not human. So it's yeah. just one or two sort of puzzles that, that are making people sort of unhappy. Yeah. But that's okay. Yeah. Yeah. And if people want to kind of dig into that a little bit more, we, we did sort of uh, talk about this in, in, in greater um, depth in episode nine. Right. So people can kind of go back into, into our back catalogue and, and dig out episode nine and you, you, you'll find us talking more about, about all of this. But that kind of sets the scene, really, for what we wanted to talk about in this episode, which is um, a new study or actually a couple of studies that were published, very significant studies back in July in the Answers Research Journal. 
that in effect were a critique of statistical barominology as a discipline. Yeah. Uh, and it was a major critique. It was. Um, it was. It, it was a you know perhaps the best um, informed critique that statistical barominology has had to date. And uh, you and and you were obviously aware of this, and, and you responded to it. And I, I just wonder, just to kind of set the scene, you know, could you could you kind of tell us a bit more about this critique and uh, you know, and, and how, how you responded to it initially. Yeah, so my, my main background is in um, sort of computational biology and using computer tools to help solve biological problems. And so I was relying on other people to tell me these are good methods to use, and so I did that. Um, not that I'm trying to, you know... I'm not, I'm not trying to get out of any errors I might have made, but but it was pretty chilling to read that manuscript. Well, there were two of them actually, two two papers that were sent to me, yeah. um, and the first one was the critique paper, and then the second one was the this is what you should have done instead, um, and they were yeah they were <clears throat> I wouldn't say devastating, but it was really hard to read <laughs> to think oh crud have I have I done everything wrong for the past you know twenty years. That's discouraging. Um, yeah, and and so the 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 author was Colin Reed, right. who's a, a retired professor of um, uh, of statistics. You know, so he's he's very well informed on statistical methodology. Absolutely, and he basically pointed out some potential problems with the existing barometrological methods and proposed some alternative methods that he thought we should be using. Right, and so. And the meth and the, the critique was largely about the assumptions that were going into the analytical methods that we were using. That that the, the sort of data that we were putting into these these procedures isn't the kind of data you're supposed to be using, and they don't meet the qualifications to be used by those methods. And so the results were all just who knows what, right? Maybe maybe you found something, maybe you didn't. Who knows? It's all questionable and there's no reason to believe any of it. And, you know, my, as I said, I, my background is not in the deep levels of statistics. Uh, so it seemed okay to me uh, from what I knew of statistics, but... Um, yeah, I mean, if you have a master of statistics coming in and telling you you're doing it wrong, you should listen. So, yeah. So my my response was basically, well, okay. Um, in the in the in the second paper where uh, Professor Reeves uh, gives us, you know, tries to use sort of standard clustering techniques, which this is a whole area of. Of, of statistical research and it's pretty hot now because people want to know you know how do you how do you target ads to certain consumers right what sorts of <laughs> what sorts of features do you can you use to group people into groups and uh, how do you recognize you know things in visual um, data right so if you're looking at a how do you do facial recognition and that sort of thing and eh, it's all about machine learning and clustering and grouping and all that sort of stuff and it all sort of rolls together and it's so it's a standard field so he says you should just use the standard stuff in the field and i thought uh, uh, 
And I had known about the standard stuff for a long time, but I had always been somewhat skeptical because with these methods, you have to tell the program to start with how many groups you want to get out of the data, which always struck me as, well, I just introduced an extra bias <laughs> into my study, right? What I really want to know is how many groups are in the data, not, you know, how many, how many, how many can you get out of it or, or, you know, give me back three groups from this data. I want, I want it. I want the program to tell me how many groups there are. So that's why I wasn't really using them. And so, yeah, so he, in his response, he used these, these methods and he gave an example using a turtle character set. And I thought, well, that's one. And what was weird about it was that it, the, the answer that he got was pretty much the same as the answer that I got when I used the baromenology methods. So I thought, well, that's, that's interesting. I wonder how often that will happen. Is that just a lucky chance or is there something else here? And the other thing that I, that I thought of as I was working through this was, you know, when, when I do this, when I do baromenology, I, I always get results out that, let's say, they make sense, right? I yeah. don't get weird things like putting a chicken together with a dog and a jellyfish into a group. That doesn't happen. You usually get out, well, something that makes some kind of sense. The cats come out together, the dogs come out together, and so forth. The hominins come out together. So it seemed to me that there was something, it might not be the best method. And it certainly is not necessarily statistically justifiable. But maybe it was practically useful anyway. Hmm. And this is something that happens in analysis all the time. You know, you have techniques, you shouldn't, you shouldn't use them, but they work. So you do it anyway. <laughs> so, so that's what I did. I went through 80 different um, mammal groups, 80, 82 different mammal groups. And, um, and it was from a paper that I had done with a student for the ICC in uh, 2018. And... And so I just re-examined re every one of them. And so this led to this massive, and I mean massive, it, this paper had a 500-page um, appendix, which was insane. It took, it took me years to do this. Um, and the result was, yes, sometimes the new methods made me doubt my original conclusions. That happened uh, frequently. Um, frequently as in maybe 10 to 20% of the time. So that's not trivial, right? That's one out of 10, one out of five. Um, but when there was a pretty clear result using the statistical baromenology methods, the original ones, mm. those were almost always confirmed. Um, and sometimes there were, uh, there were results that were sort of borderline and I wasn't sure about that were much more clear when I used the sort of the clustering analysis that Professor Reeves recommended. So, yeah, yeah, it actually turned out pretty well. And, and the, the, you know, hmm. statistical baromenology wasn't as bad <laughs> as I feared it might be. Hmm. It's, it's one of those things where, you know, you shouldn't use a hammer to, to, to put in a screw, but if it works, it works. What can you do? <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, regular listeners to the podcast might remember that I interviewed Tim Brophy back in episode 14 
about a study that he did looking at another group, the landfowl, and he also came to similar conclusions that you did, that actually the new methods, you know, while they, um, you know, there were some differences, broadly they helped to confirm the results that he'd already gained using the, um, the, the older methods. So that's kind of reassuring yeah. in, in a way. But that brings us then to the hominins, because your studies back in 2010, 2016 were using the older methods. And recently, um, along with uh, a student that you were working with, you published uh, a reanalysis yes. of the hominins using the new methods that had been recommended by Professor Reeves. Right. So tell us about that and tell, tell us what you discovered. Yeah, so, so that was the big question, right? Um, and that was, I think, highly motivational for the entire, <laughs> the entire thing. People were mad about what I was saying about hominins, and they were mad enough to say, your entire methodology is false. And and other things. I mean, I've had other criticisms too. It's not just Professor Reeves. So there there have been other sure. there have been other people who have been unhappy with my pronouncements on hominins. Okay, so so that was the big question. You know, if I redo if I redo what I did in hominins. With these other methods that Professor Reeves says are better and more justifiable and more reasonable, will I come up with an answer that is uh, the same? Will it be different? Will it show that my hominin results are all completely bogus? Will it, uh, you know, will it show that I just, you know, those 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 arguable groups <laughs> are they going to show? end up, you know, arguable fossils? Are they going to end up in a different group? Um, so that was my thought. And so, yeah, I, I had a, a great student working with me. And um, so we went through and we said, all right, let's 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 try just using what I used 10 years ago uh, when I made my first baromenology study of hominins and that made people unhappy. And then I said, let's use the most recent information that we have. Um, that, that is, uh, you know, more than almost more than almost 400 um, characters of the skull and teeth. Mm. So, uh, so the idea there was with the with the original data set from 2010. The idea was, you know, had I used these methods that were available at the time. Uh, would I have come to a different conclusion? So basically the question mm. is, did I screw up? <laughs> did, I, mm. did I make a mistake <laughs> 10 years ago and should I be contrite and apologize? Which frankly is a legitimate question, I think. Um, and then, uh, then you know, know what, knowing what we know now about hominins and all of their characteristics, uh, would that change anything if I used these new techniques, these other techniques? Mm. And no, they nothing changes. <laughs> I mean, let's just cut to the punchline. Nothing changed, um, and, and I don't want to get too too uh, too wrapped up in myself and too you know full of myself about this. But it was um, super gratifying, <laughs> right? <laughs> to have published so much on on hominins and and you know really stuck my neck out and. 
and said some things that I knew was going to upset a lot of people. And to come away and say, no, that's really what the data, that's really there. So it, it was it was really, really remarkable to see um, with the data from 10 years ago, no question about it. The, the other methods that Professor Reeves recommended, they totally confirmed my original conclusion with the modern with the modern um, data, things are a little fuzzier for some things, but not for the ones that everybody was upset about. Uh, and mm. so, yeah, it, it seems as though, um, I don't want to say confirm. Well, it does kind of confirm what I what I originally found. Um, but there's still open questions, right? I mean, there's still... Right. I, I still have my doubts. I, I still wonder about certain fossils and i still wonder about you know can we make this better can we do better mm -hmm. um and so that's what you know that's what we're working on right now is trying to make it better and trying to make a better and, and there are still some fossils where the results are just not clear yeah. where we we still don't really know that's right um, so yeah. and some of that just comes from the fact that a lot of these things that we that that are found in the field are fragmentary and mm -hmm. sometimes there's not very much of it, right? So you yeah. might get for, say, something like, uh, so I'm going to use a big term here, Homo rudolfensis. This is, a, this is essentially basically a skull and some scattered bones and other skull fragments that have been found in Kenya. There you go. That's what you got. Is this even a species? I have no idea. Is it a variant of another species? We yeah. don't know. Um, and and the, the 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 professionals in the field also tend to say we're not real sure what to do with this. They they they've taken to using a term early Homo to describe all of these weird weird fossils that they're not sure how to describe because they don't know if they're really a species. Um, yeah. So. So this is sort of inherent. This yep. isn't just my problem. This isn't just because I'm doing some weird thing. This is just this is just part of dealing with the kinds of fossils and information that we have. It's just it's just limited. You've been listening to Todd and Paul Talk Creation. If you'd like more information on sponsorship opportunities, or maybe you'd like to have a product or book reviewed or discussed on our podcast, please contact us at podcast at corsi.org. That's podcast at corsi.org. If you would like more information about what we discussed today, be sure to check out our show notes at corsi.org slash podcast. That's corsi.org slash podcast. Now, the reanalysis that you've just published, as I understand it, was based, as you say, pretty much on skulls and teeth. That's so right. cr cr craniodental data. Yes. Uh, what you're missing from the analysis uh, is anything from the neck down right. so all, all of the post cranial stuff yes is that is that what you're working on next uh is there enough data out there to do, to do something along those lines to expand the data set yes and yes um yes it is what okay. we're working on right now so we, we we've compiled uh um around i think it's around 200 characters right now from the post cranium mm -hmm. Um, and this is all okay. from anatomical literature. We we read the, the experts and say, okay, well, this this sounds like a good characteristic to list. Now that's going to get pared down. We're gonna we're gonna 
cut some out. Some things are just not very good characters, and we're going to eliminate those and try to clean up the characters and make them good. But we're not going to do any baromenology on them until we've sort of settled on what the good characters are. So we don't want to use our results to say, oh, this is a good character and this is not. (laughs) We want to use our knowledge of anatomy and so forth to to be able to do it. Is there enough out there? I think so. Um, I think we're living in a, a pretty dramatic time period where a lot of things are available to you on the internet. Mm. Photographs from museums are right out there if you know where to find them. There are um, three-dimensional models from other museums that you can get. Some of them you can actually download and print on your 3D printer at home and you can have your own and you can hold them in your hands. And so uh, we're at a point, I think, where there's enough information out there that... It, it makes sense to start working on the skeleton. Um, and, and I would add here, this is this is kind of a... This is one of the critiques of my work, is that I don't look at the skeleton. I only look at the skull. And, frankly, that's a reasonable critique. Um, hmm. I, I... The skull is incredibly information-rich. And when you think about the way you recognize other people, how do you do it? You look at them, you look at their face, and you recognize, I know that face. Um, You might recognize body shape and how they move and so forth, but really the way you know for sure that you recognize someone is is by looking them in the face. So it seemed to me that it would make sense to use the skull because there's so much information, and it does make sense from a sort of a, philosophical standpoint that you would be able to recognize people based on their faces. But the bodies are really interesting. So the bodies of hominins are really interesting. And when you get to something like Australopithecus, you get to a thing that is, well, the, the below the waist, so the, the sort of the hips down, Australopithecus looks kind of like us, sort of. Mm. Uh, they have not exactly but they definitely don't look like chimpanzees from the waist down they look like they've been walking around on two legs whereas if you look at them from the hips up uh, the arms and the shoulders tend to be tend to show the characteristics of things that climb a lot that climb in trees or climb up rock faces or whatever Mm. so yeah the skeleton's really important I think. And it and, and of course when you think about a chimpanzee, yeah, there's differences in the skull, but man, there's a lot of differences in the skeleton as well. So so I'm really interested in, you know, putting in a lot of this information and, and finding out what what are we gonna get? What's it gonna tell us? And so that work is going on right now. I I can only tell you we got a couple hundred characters. I, I haven't done any real um barominology with them. My student and I have been discussing, as we've talked about, you know, what characters we should use. We've been talking about how we should integrate them with the skull information, right? Because with 400 skull characters and 200 uh, skeletal characters, well, you can see you got a two-to-one ratio there. So what's going to dominate the clustering? Well, it's going to be whatever the skull wants, right? (laughs) 
whatever the skull characters want. So we've got to figure out a way to sort of balance the scales. And I, so it's a lot of technical stuff that we're doing right now, um, getting ready to to do our our next our next analysis. So I, you know, is are things going to change? It's entirely possible. Uh, it's very possible that we're going to come away, you know, at the end of next year, thinking, okay, now we do have some really good reasons to think this fossil or that fossil isn't human or actually is human or whatever. I don't know. That's science, right? You don't know the answer when you go yeah. into it. So, Yeah. Well, that's really exciting. So, you know, p- listeners and, and viewers can see, you know, here, here's some creation science actually in progress, actually happening as we speak. And if um, people want to find out more about all of this, um, they can look up the papers that we've been talking about in the Answers Research Journal, and we can put links to those in the show notes. Um, Your blog is also a good place to kind of hear about this because you regularly blog about the work that you're doing and about new discoveries. So that's um, toddcwood.blogspot.com. And there's also a website, isn't there? Uh, Humangenesis.org. That's right. Uh, And... Again, there's lots of helpful resources there, uh, articles and video clips and all, all kinds of things right. that people can Human Genesis, discover more about. Uh, so this. my personal blog is more, you know, progress reports and technical stuff. Human Genesis, mm-hmm. I try to limit that to things that are more accessible to everybody, right? So yeah, hopefully, if you are not a science-inclined person, you should be able to go to Human Genesis and basically figure out what's going on. You might not understand all the names and what yeah. in the world, you know, all the names are talking about, but you should be able to, you know, figure out, you know, I have articles there about using fire. I have articles there about about crossing uh, open ocean or crossing open bodies of water, uh, seafaring. So, so hopefully that's a little more accessible than, than the blog. Yeah. Now, I want to shift gear at this point and uh, talk about a specific uh, homonym fossil in particular, yeah. uh, talking about names that are unfamiliar to people. So we're, we're going to be talking about uh, something called Homo naledi, uh, because there have been some uh, significant new discoveries uh, published very recently about Homo naledi. And uh, just to kind of set the scene, Todd, fill us in on the background to the discovery of Naledi, right. because it really is an absolutely remarkable story. <laughs> it is, yeah. <laughs> so, so yeah. So basically, it, it, it comes down to um, a professor called Lee Berger, who is from the United States, living in uh, South Africa. He uh, had some, I think it was a former student who had come to him um, looking for some work. And he, Dr. Berger sent him out to explore some caves, basically said, go see if you can find something new. And so he did. Basically, that's exactly what happened. He went out to what is called the Rising Star Cave. And this is a cave in, uh, it's about 30 minutes north of uh, Johannesburg. So it's really close uh, to a major metropolitan area. And in this cave, they found on the surface a bunch of hominin bones. And so, but it was in this place, <laughs> they eventually named it the Dinaletti Chamber. Um, it's really hard to get to. You have to climb up a very tall, uh, well, it's two hours to get into this area. It is in the wow. dark zone of the cave. There's no light that penetrates. It's a very small 
accessible thing called the chute to get there, right? So the chute is this narrow, basically a little chimney that you have to climb down in order to get into uh, what they call the antechamber. And then you go through another little tunnel to get into what they call the Dinaletti chamber, which is where they found thousands and thousands of bones of a hominin species uh, that was new to us. We did not know about this guy before, and they called it Homo naledi. Uh, so this was done, the initial discoveries in 2013. It was published in uh, the fall of 2015. Uh, and, and there have been additional announcements and discoveries and research progress that have been published uh, as they as as time has progressed since then so and the, and the excavations are ongoing so it, it's mm. it's a remarkable it's a remarkable story you know, thousands of fossils mm. right under your nose effectively <laughs> yeah absolutely incredible um and as i understand it i mean not only is this a new uh, a new species uh homo naledi um and the quality and the abundance of the material <clears throat> is extraordinary um, because we have at least uh, one of every bone in the body almost Pretty close, uh, there, yeah. are, there are close there are a few bones that are not represented yeah. um, and uh, in in many cases we have multiple individuals um, you know with the same bones yes. so so you know you can begin to look at variation in the population yes um, Perhaps one of the most remarkable things about this discovery, apart from the abundance and quality of the, of the fossils, is where they were found. Right. Yeah. So they're dinner they're chamber, in this. Yeah. They're in that dinner lady chamber, which is extremely difficult to get to. Right. And as far as we can tell, there is a, basically only one route in and out of that chamber. Yes. Um, you, you know, you have to kind of take this route that takes you i think it's about 70 meters from the cave entrance and it's very narrow and winding and you have to go down a big drop you know in in into the into the chamber and that's basically where the bones are uh and what's the significance of that how did those bones get there Todd? that's been one of the big questions right so the the Lieberger's team basically said, we can't imagine how this assemblage came here, except that they were intentionally put there. Hmm. Uh, and so their idea was, okay, Homunaledi is essentially depositing the dead bodies of their population, whatever it is, mm. in this area. They are climbing underground intentionally to do this. Um, it didn't seem like this would be something where, say, a group of these guys just got lost underground. Uh, mm. that, that, that's a little a bit of an odd idea because there were so, so many of them. Um, and, 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 also, and also the... the the population is kind of skewed towards the young end of the scale. Right. So there are juveniles and infants yes. and it's, it's, it's not a kind of caving trip gone wrong, is no, it? No, no, it's, it is not a kind of caving trip. No. And, uh, it's not a place where there's any sinkhole, right? So you would imagine very easily 
if there's a hole in the ground that is very small and you don't see it and you're just walking along and you fall into it and fall down and die, there you go. That's how you accumulate all sorts of uh, animals in, in cave deposits. The difficulty with that is there's only a homo naledi in, these, in, these, in this deposit. Now, there are a few other things. There's some mouse bones, but it wasn't clear that those were actually connected with the naledi fossils. There was an owl. There was some remains of an owl. And again, that was not clear that that had anything to do with naledi fossils. There was also, now we find out, there's uh, baboon remains. But baboons are also known to climb around in caves. So, so in every instance there, it's entirely possible that those are just wayward, lost creatures that did get in there somehow. But for the most part, you have, you know, thousands of these homonaledi bones and nothing else. And they're skewed towards older and younger um, members of the population. So, which is sort of consistent with what you would find in, in a, in a pre-modern graveyard where mortality is highest when you're very young and when you're very old. Mm. And yeah, and it was, you know, it's a two hour trip. Um, mm. for people well equipped to get down there uh, to do to, to just go one way and then you'd have two hours to come back out again so and and for much of it in complete darkness <coughs> um, so presumably um, you know they must have used artificial light because there's just no light at all down in down in that cave system that's right so that's that's been another that's been another question people have asked, Every time I've seen Lee Berger speak, and I've seen, I saw him in person at a conference two years ago, and I've seen a bunch of streaming uh, lectures that he's given, and every time people want to know, did they have light? Have you tried looking for remains of fire in, in the cave? And, and yes, they have talked to a lot of experts about that, and, they, and, and as far as I am aware, they do not have, or at least they have not announced any um, evidence of intentional fire use. So it's a bit of a puzzle right uh, and 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 the other thing that everybody wants to know when when he talks is could it be this could it be that everybody people just don't really buy into this whole body disposal idea that this is a graveyard um so but everything else is much less likely than they climbed down there and dropped off the bodies of their kin that's more likely. Everything else is much less likely. And so what do you do? Seems like it seems like that's what it is. They were they were they were climbing down there to, to, to put the bodies of their of their population members. Yeah. Now very recently, um, Lee Berger has published a couple of other papers about uh, Homer Naledi. Um I think one involved the discovery of more juvenile remains. Now, juvenile remains have been found before, as we've already said. That's right. that's, that's not new. Right. But what is a little bit interesting is where those juvenile bones were found. Yes. Uh, and then uh, the other paper was about the exploration of other passageways off the main chamber. So, so just tell us a bit about that. Yeah. So the 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 new the new papers describe another thousand feet of cave exploration 300 meters of cave exploration about and so beyond 
the Denaletti chamber, you come to a chamber apparently where there's a bunch of rocks falling from the ceiling. They call that the chaos chamber. And beyond that, there are additional little crevices in the rocks that go, and they go multiple ways. So you can actually um, follow these crevices and see what you find. And so they have found remains at four locations in those crevices that are quite far from uh, the Dinaletti chamber. And so the, the skull fragments they found, they found 34 skull fragments, I think it was, and they called this uh, Leti Mela, or Leti, which comes from a local uh, word for the lost one. Um, so, and th th as you say, the fragments, they're interesting. It's a juvenile, juvenile skull fragments, but they're very, it's very fragmentary. It is not a complete skull. Um, the main interest is where it was found and the further exploration of, of Rising Star. So, uh, yeah, it raises a lot of interesting questions. Um, mm. Namely, you know, how do you imagine Dinaletti being used in the first place, right? So do you imagine that, say... Homonaletti goes crawling into the cave and drops the body of their dear departed down the chute, and then they just walk back out again, crawl back out again, right? Hmm. That's one possibility. Uh, and there were remains found at the base of the chute, which suggested maybe that happened once in a while. Hmm. Um, but the majority of the remains are not found at the bottom of the chute. They're found down into, in the actual Dinaletti chamber, which is another chamber over from the, the antechamber. <clears throat> and so that suggests that Naledi was actually getting down into this chamber, into the bottom of it, and moving into the Dinaletti chamber to put their, the bodies of their, of their kin in, um, in that chamber. And so discovering a single skull of a juvenile homonaletti considerably far away from the concentration of remains in the Dinaletti chamber suggests that that's exactly what was happening, that, that there had been activity down at the bottom of this, <clears throat> bottom of this chamber, leading to, at some point, uh, maybe a, maybe another kid, maybe maybe an adult had picked up a skull and walked off into the next chamber over to do a little exploring and set it on a shelf, which is basically where the fragments were found, and then you know came back and left left the chamber. Mm. We don't know that that's what happened, but it's it's definitely implies. I mean, the the, the skull by itself, no other bones, uh, suggests that the skull was put there as a skull. And then the the fact that it's so far from the Dinaletti chamber, I mean, there's really, I mean, there's really only one way to get that lone skull down there with no bones in between, uh, and no other bones where it was discovered. It it had to be moved there intentionally. So there have been hominins down there before uh, we found it, and human beings found it in the modern in the modern mm -hmm. age. So yeah. That's fascinating. So, Todd, tr 
try to make sense of this for us then. What what does all of this mean for Homo naledi, for our understanding of naledi as a, as a hominin, but also in, in the creation model? And perhaps, you know, we, we can tie this up with what we were saying earlier about your baromenology studies. Uh, what what did you discover about Homo naledi? Where, do, where does Homo naledi fall right. in your clusters? Right. Uh, you know, is... Is Homo naledi on the human side, yes. or, or do you think it's an ape? No, no, <laughs> no. It landed on the human side. When you know, the thing that struck me the most as I was reading about Homo naledi, you know, back in 2015, was just the, the burial evidence. This this idea that these these hominins were, you know, digging uh, or climbing down into this cave and leaving their dead there. I couldn't imagine any other way to explain. Uh, the data and so like Berger I just said well I, I guess they had to be put there somebody was climbing into that cave and leaving leaving these bodies and so I suspected right away that that's a human behavior right if you're if you're taking that much time to crawl that far underground to lay grandma to rest this is not simply a thing of we need to get rid of these bodies because it will attract predators or scavengers or dangerous animals. This is a this is a this is a genuine care that you're showing for your your the your kin that have passed on. So I suspected right away this is probably human. So when my statistical analysis, I mean, it was very clear, it landed right in the human group. So I I had no doubt that what I was looking at. Uh, was human. And for the most part, the controversy about that has been somewhat less because a lot of creationists weren't quite sure what to do with Naledi. And so there's been a lot of uncertainty among creationists. There have been those who have been, uh, I would say, very impressed with the burial evidence and and are very comfortable saying this is this, these guys have to be human. And then there's others who have been very skeptical and very... Um, unhappy with just accepting accepting uh, a different form of human. And, and the Letty is different. I mean, they do have different shaped bodies and, and they're considerably shorter than we are. The adults seem to be about four foot tall. So, yeah. They're, so, you know, creationists in general have been somewhat um, befuddled by the Letty. And so my position on the Letty hasn't necessarily been so wildly <laughs> controversial as... <laughs> other things I've talked about. Yeah. Yeah. So what does the existence of another type of human that has a different kind of body shape, uh, you know, different brain size? Um, uh, Naledi has some very strange features, these weird up-flared shoulder blades yeah. and yeah. Uh, things like that. Uh, you know, how does that fit into the creation model? What what do we make of these? Um, you know, where do they fit into into the scheme of creationist yeah. earth history then? Tom. I think it just fits in exactly. Um, yeah. We have created kinds that have more than one species, right? We think cats and lions belong to the same created kind. We think horses and donkeys belong to the same created kind. I think that's exactly what's happening with human beings as well. Um, mm -hmm. That we are not exempt from that sort of diversity that we see among other created kinds. The only thing that's different about us is that Right now, there's only one type of us left, right? There's only Homo sapiens. And so we tend to be a bit, I don't know, uh, 
self-centered when we're talking about what is human. We think, oh, humans have giant brains and it's inconceivable that something could be small and be human when we know that's not true. There are small humans running around all the time. We call them children. Um, they have small brains too. Um, and yeah, it's, it's, it's not that shocking, um, really. And so, yeah, it's, it's, they, I think they fit into there and I think they fit into a post flood world, if you're wondering about that. So I think this is, this is something after the scattering at Babel, uh, because mostly because I think the flood is the main thing that's carving caves to begin with. Uh, the hydrothermal activity, the hydrothermal, you know, hot water, boiling acid type stuff that's happening in local uh, spots during the flood is carving out these, or slightly after the flood, carving out these caves and exposing them to the surface. <clears throat> and so, yeah, hominins start to use them. And that's when the, the um, remains can accumulate in a cave. So, yeah, I, I, I don't think this is all that shocking. This fits right in with what we know. I think it's just Naledi is different enough in the body that we think that's weird. Creationists have often used the skeleton primarily as the way to tell what fossils are human and what fossils are not human. So this one has a different kind of a skeleton. And so it mm. sort of leaves creationists a little uncomfortable, I think. Mm. That's very interesting. Well, we, we probably ought to begin to draw this to a, to a close here, Todd. Um, people can obviously go and visit the, uh, the humangenesis.org site that we mentioned earlier. They can check out your blog um, to sort of keep up to date with developments. And I'm sure we'll come back and we'll, we'll revisit this topic again at some point in the future. Uh, for now... Um, Remember uh, to check us out on uh, your favorite um, podcast platform and to leave us likes, shares, reviews, um, you know, share the episodes with your friends. Uh, if you have questions or comments, we do love hearing from our listeners and you can email us at podcast at coresci.org. That's C-O-R-E-S-C-I dot O-R-G. And if you want to check out our show notes and, you know, where, where we stream, um, then you can look up the webpage coursei.org forward slash podcast. All of the options are there. Finally, Todd, um, we're getting towards year end. And for both of our respective ministries, uh, Core Academy of Science and Biblical Creation Trust, we definitely appreciate people's donations to help us continue doing the work that we're doing. How do people donate to CORE? Please visit coresci.org slash donate. We're in the midst of our year-end campaign right now. We are seeking $30,000 to finish off the year. Um, and most American ministries bring in about 30 to 40% of their annual income in the month of December wow. between Thanksgiving and New Year's. So... Uh, please do consider uh, a year-end donation for us. We are tax-deductible. Uh, we are a non-profit, so your, your contributions are tax-deductible. So visit coresci.org slash donate to find out more. That's great. 
And likewise for Biblical Creation Trust, you know, COVID has, has um, been a very strange time. Um, we're, we've not been able to do many of our regular activities, including going out speaking and doing our regular outreach activities. And obviously that has an impact on our finances. So if you want to help us, uh, you know, keep the ministry going, um, do visit our website, biblicalcreationtrust.org, biblicalcreationtrust.org. Uh, there's a donate button at the top of the home page and that will take you to all of the options for how you can uh, give to us, including a PayPal facility if you're not based in the UK. OK, uh, I think we'll draw it to a conclusion there. We'll be back next time. I'm not quite sure what we have uh, coming up in our next episode, um, but come back and, and find out in two weeks time. Yep. Bye for now. See you later. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Let's Talk Creation. If you have questions, send them to podcast at coreside.org. That's P-O-D-C-A-S-T at C-O-R-E-S-C-I dot org. And be sure to let your friends know about Let's Talk Creation. And check us out on social media. Thank you.